We've reached the end, 11 straight weeks in this obscure Old Testament prophet. It's a section of Scripture that's very tempting to ignore, maybe even intentionally avoid, filled with foreign-sounding names and places and cultures, with uh, apocalyptic language, and lots of bad news. Over and over, we keep reading bad news of judgment coming on God's people. But through Micah, through his voice, I hope you'd agree with me, we have caught a fresh glimpse of the glory of God. We've heard God speak a fresh word, a good word, a gospel word to us. Amen? It's, it's been refreshing to be in this series. Uh, it'll run right into the, the height of the, east, uh, the, the Christmas season. And as we wrap things up this morning, um, what I want us to do is to keep a, a big picture sense of why Micah's message is still so very relevant to us today, 2,700 years after he ministered. So we'll, we'll stay with the big picture. We'll look at the last three verses of the book, and then we'll have some Q&A time to wrap up our series as we like to do uh, here at GRC. Okay, so if you think of some questions maybe that you've had over these 11 weeks and can remember something, um, that'll be at the end. Why do we need Micah's message today? I've said this probably three or four times during messages this fall. It's not too difficult to think of, to describe in vivid detail how broken our world really is. War and terrorism, incredible depths of poverty, hatred and racism, all kinds of injustices and examples of oppression and corruption and disintegrating families. It's not too difficult to, to realize how broken our world is. There are shootings at naval bases and at high schools all too often. There's an epidemic of lying and cheating by taxpayers, office workers, federal officials, students in class, religious leaders and Hollywood moguls and corporate executives abuse their power and privilege for personal gain and gratification. We read story after story of these examples of brokenness. There are horrific acts of humanity that I can't even mention. Evil is a reality that is all around us. We need justice. But it won't come through the government or the legal system. It won't come through verbal spats on social media. It won't come through vigilante justice, us sort of getting justice for ourselves, for our families, setting things right, both at Thanksgiving dinner and among the most brilliant thinkers this world has. There is no, there is no agreement about what's right and what's wrong. And ironically, the disagreement is not so much whether or not there is good and evil. Everyone's bothered by something deeply. But the disagreement is more along the lines of how you know what's good and evil and where that standard comes from. Just a few days ago, the Atlantic Magazine um, ran an article on Tim Keller. And the, uh, the author who knows him uh, from uh, decades of, of um, close ministry 
asked him a few questions. And in one section of the article, Keller cites the philosopher Alvin Plantiga, I think he's at uh, Notre Dame, when he says that if you believe in God, evil and suffering are big problems. In other words, can't really explain a lot of the horrific things that happen in our world today. If you believe in God, evil and suffering are big problems. But if you don't believe in God, they're actually bigger problems, Plantiga would say. Why? Because to call something evil, to label that horrific, to say that we need to fix what's wrong with this part of our world requires belief in moral absolutes. These truths that transcend a particular circumstance, they always are. They're, They're truth with a capital T. To call something evil requires belief in a supernatural standard of goodness, of morality, of, of what is beautiful, of what is harmonious. We, we'd go back to the, the biblical word that we, we saw in Micah several times. It requires belief in some standard of what is shalom, not just peace, but the world as it's supposed to be, the world as we all long for it to be. You know, the, the secular person whether or not they would say there might be a God out there or not, the, the secular person appropriately insists on human rights and the defense of the vulnerable. The secular person appropriately pushes back against oppression and corruption and injustice. But if there's no God, where does that insistence come from? What gives you the moral authority to insist that your standard of labeling this or that corruption or evil or injustice is always true. If there's no God, then evil and suffering and and oppression are natural elements in a world without God. Survival of the fittest works with lions versus gazelles on the plains of Africa. Survival of the fittest works with foxes and rabbits in the woods of Vermont. And if the secularist, as the secularist believes, we are merely advanced animals, then what's wrong with the strong killing off the weak? What's wrong with the far more subtle version of that? The ingenious and the creative and the athletic and the smart and the entrepreneurial pushing aside those who are not in their pursuit of gain and status and prestige and power. What's wrong with that? The Bible gives us the clear answer. There is a God. He is truth. He defines it. He's revealed it to us through the prophets and through ultimately the Son. And God's truthful character also means He'll bring justice. He will act against that which is false and deceptive. And because He is loving, He longs to set right everything that has gone wrong to make possible His people's greatest flourishing. It changes everything. We've talked about people's objections to, quote-unquote, the angry God of the Old Testament. You know, I don't like to read the Old Testament because I just don't understand why God is so angry all the time, getting rid of people here and there. But we've said over the 11 weeks of the series, we wouldn't want it any other way. Yes, it bothers us. Yes, uh, there are parts where we're just not sure what to do with this, but we wouldn't want it any other way. 
we would shrink back in horror at a world without justice. The phrase, going to hell in a handbasket, pretty much sums that kind of world up really well. And yet, we should also shrink back in horror at a world of pure justice. As Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 would put it, and as Paul quotes those two Psalms in Romans 3 and adds to it, there is no one who does good, not even one. As he continues to say in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, all are deserving of the wrathful justice of God because of our sin. We don't want a, a world without justice because everything wrong would just continue to spiral down to go to hell in a handbasket, but neither do we want a world with pure justice because we're guilty because we can't stand in front of a holy God for a moment without deserving justice, we have a problem. We want and need justice in our world, but that same justice brings our condemnation. As a pastor, I have the unique privilege, sometimes the unique burden, of entering deeply into your brokenness often relational brokenness. It might be a marriage that's about to go over the edge and it's been festering for years. It might be two people in interpersonal conflict and they can't see beyond the issue. The only way out of the painful mess, I don't mean to suggest there's an easy formula. It's always painful, prayerful um, uh, uh, ministry with, alongside. But the only way out of the painful mess is always a mix of justice and mercy. Uh, Maybe I'll use justice a little bit loosely. I don't mean to punish someone. I mean that justice involves truth-telling. And As a response to truth-telling, justice involves confessing sin and turning away from it. The the healing always involves a mix of justice and mercy, truth-telling, confessing, and repentance, but also mercy, forgiveness, not holding against the other person, not treating them as their sins deserve. When both are powerfully present, justice and mercy, you get a glimpse of sheer beauty. You you get a taste of what God longs for our world and our relationships to be. We need the justice of God to set right everything wrong in a destructive and broken world. And we need the mercy of God to make possible a way of restoration, reconciliation, renewal that can only come through forgiveness of sin. That brings us to the very last verses of the book, three verses. These echo Micah's name, which means, who is like the Lord? Who is like Yahweh, the personal name of God? This is how he ends a book filled with cycles of gloom and glory, lots of bad news with these hints of glory, with with these glimpses of gospel. He asks a question in prayer, who is a God like you 
who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. How can God keep His very old promises? Micah refers to Jacob and Abraham, the forefathers of the Israelites, promises made hundreds and hundreds of years ago. How can God keep those very old promises when the ancestors of Jacob and Abraham have rejected the promises? They've rebelled in sin. They've turned away thinking that other so-called gods can deliver what they long for. How will God pardon sin and forgive and hurl these iniquities into the depths of the sea? How can He extend mercy while remaining just? Micah knows, but not really. He trusts the character of God. He just doesn't know how this is going to play out. When Micah writes, this is what we looked at last Sunday, in verse 8, do not gloat over me, my enemy, though I have fallen, I will rise, though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. I don't think he really knows how that's going to happen. God's revealed it to him through his spirit, and he trusts, he believes, he stands firm. Jesus would say to Micah and to us, my enemies will gloat over me. They will mock me and taunt me while I hang on that cross. Though I've fallen, I will fall all the way. I will sit in darkness, even the darkness of hell, when the Father turns His face away, but I will rise. Death will get me. A cave will hold me for three days, but I will rise, Micah. You have no idea. I will fulfill these thoughts that my spirit has planted in you that you've proclaimed to my people. When Micah writes in verse 9, because I've sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath, Jesus would respond, yes, Micah, you and the rest of the people of God will endure discipline from the Father for a time. You will see this city of Jerusalem destroyed. You will be carted off if you survive to a foreign land where you will remain for two generations, but you will not bear the fullness of the Father's wrath. If you believe in me, I will bear the fullness of the Father's wrath when I hang on that cross and bear the punishment that your sins deserve. I will fulfill this. And I will plead your case, verse 9, and accomplish your justice, verse 9. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Advocate, like a defense attorney who says to the judge, Father, you have already punished me for his sin. There's no double jeopardy. The penalty has been paid, he must go free. It's not a question so much as it, it is an insistence according to the character of God. His justice maintained, the Father punished, his mercy made possible because Jesus 
is our substitute. This is what Paul means when he writes in Romans chapter 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and merciful. So as to be just, this is the way Paul puts it, so as to be just, he's a good judge, he maintains justice, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, the one who declares them righteous, forgiven on the basis of what he has done to the Son in our place. This is how God has revealed himself. If only Micah could have seen 700 years into the future when the Messiah of Israel came in the little town of Bethlehem, Micah would have fallen on his face in awe and worship and said to those listening to his preaching, I had no idea. It's true. So that's how it will happen. That's how he will maintain the Lord our God, his justice and mercy. Glory be to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord is our salvation. Let's pray. And then if you have any questions, we'll spend some time. Jesus, we are in awe of how good news washes away all the bad news of sin and judgment. Let us not skip there with easy believism. Let us not think that forgiveness comes quickly without cost. But Lord, uh, as we look in the spiritual mirror and admit how far short we fall, Lord, bring us to the foot of the cross immediately that we might know your love and mercy for us. Amen. So if you haven't um, taken part in one of these, this is how we typically end a sermon series. Um, in this case, 11 weeks. Ephesians was 42, so it was a little harder to remember the beginning. But um, there are a couple of mics that are going to be around. One is here with David and one's here with Cliff. And um, I, I know some particular things that you may have thought of in September are, aren't going to be easy to recall, but are there any questions about Micah and themes that our series in Micah have um, stirred in you? usually takes a while. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Thank you for proclaiming Christ. It's refreshing. Amen. You've done the most study on this book. What has changed you? What has re been reinforced in your relationship with Christ? How has it changed you? Hmm. Thank you. Remind me of your name. Mark. Mark. Thank you, Mark. Um, you know, in the first week... Before the first Sunday, um, I was interacting with somebody in the church, and she asked me, how can I pray for you? And I said, I'm starting Micah this Sunday. It didn't take me long to answer the question. I'm starting Micah this Sunday, and um, it, it's an intimidating book to undertake. And she said, I don't think of you and intimidating in the same sentence. And I told her, don't believe everything you see. <laughs> don't, believe every, uh, don't believe the appearances. Um, this was a, a, a book that I 
try to stay away from, but the Lord wouldn't let me. And I knew this. This is why I was convicted and convinced both that we needed to walk through a book like this. I, I know Jesus is the point of all the Scriptures. He tells the disciples in Luke chapter 24 that Moses, Torah, the prophets, um, and the writings, the, the poetic books, the three sections of the Hebrew Bible, are all about Him. And so, the entire to- Old Testament points us to Jesus. Um, I have been so encouraged as I've studied and, and prayed and prepared and preached to, to see that uh, that is never far from the case. Um, the gospel is even powerfully present in a book filled with judgment. And so, I, I, I share that uh, as an encouragement to you. Um, I have the privilege of spending a lot of time in this book of God and reading good books about it. Um, and um, the gospel's everywhere. So, I, maybe that's a, a pastoral note I'd start out on. You know, if you are weighed down with guilt and shame, if you are weighed down in darkness, even a book filled with heavy stuff, we keep saying bad news throughout Micah, has a but God underneath it all. But God, you know, you, I will sit in darkness, but I will rise. How will you rise? Not by pulling up your bootstraps, not by figuring things out, not by trying harder, but by placing even more full, dependent faith in the, in the God of resurrection. So, I, I think I'd answer that with more of that pastoral uh, angle. Thanks, Mark. Anybody else? Hi. I just wonder if you can um, make the make it clear the difference between the distinction the, the distinction between temporal discipline and divine punishment. Hmm. Thanks, Wo. Temporal punishment. Um, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, endure hardship, and, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Um, and the expectation is that there is a loving father is going to bring discipline on his children. Um, the, the, the section there that, that quotes um, the Proverbs assumes that fatherly discipline is enacted out of love. Okay, so um, in, in the context of Micah, the entire nation of Israel, remember it's split into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the, in the south, but, but Micah's prophecy, like many of the prophets, often refers to Israel as the whole people of God. Okay, this, this distinction was that the separation was artificial, it was never of God. Israel is His people. And um, the historical backdrop is Assyria, the kingdom, comes and destroys Israel to the north and the capital city of Samaria and knocks on the doors of Jerusalem under Micah's uh, time, King Hezekiah being the the king of Judah at the time, and the Lord delivers them, 185,000 Assyrians dead in the camp, Sennacherib retreats with his tail between his legs. And we know from other prophetic books like Jeremiah that there's a hundred-year reprieve faithful preaching of God's Word brought 
a measure of renewal in the kingdom, especially in the king's hearts, uh, Hezekiah. But Babylon would later come and finish the job and destroy Jerusalem and cart off the exile. So discipline did come. The question in the midst of, of the, the faithful remnant, remember the, the, that technical term for those whom God would preserve and would restore back to the land. Um, here's the reality for, for if, we, if we just focus on those folks, obviously we don't know who that was, but we know that God would maintain a people for himself and he would grant them sustaining, persevering faith. They were some killed by the sword. They were um, ravaged by disease and famine under the siege. And if they survived, they were carted off into exile and died in Babylon without ever seeing the promises of God fulfilled. Temporal discipline. But if they continued to trust in Yahweh, God of Israel, and his promises made of old to Jacob and to Abraham way back, this is how the book of Micah ends, um, they would not be subject to eternal, full wrath of God that sin deserves. Um, the, the temptation when you're going through a struggle in your life is to think, well, why is God bringing this on me? What have I done wrong? And there's, a, there's an okay element of that, and there's a not okay element of that. The, the okay element is, um, for example, in James chapter 5, we, we always read this passage when we start a healing service, okay? If you're sick, pray to the elders, and they will anoint you with oil and pray over you, and uh, the prayer offered in faith will, will, will heal you. Okay? It's, not, it's not a formula. We say, well, we believe in faith that God can do this. And I always read the next verse of James chapter 5 um, because they're linked. James 5, uh, was it 14? Uh, and the prayer offered in faith is 16, uh, 15. 16, I always read, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We like to quote that last part like to make a bumper sticker Christianity of that last part, but we skip out the beginning of chapter, uh, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other. So the okay element of I'm going through a trial, what have I done wrong, is not always to think that God is doing this tit-for-tat response, right? Um, that's sort of a works righteousness or a karma-like way of thinking, but there is an okay element to say in this trial, how can God use this as a mirror to my heart to show me how I have trusted in things other than Him and His promises? Not to think that He's a capricious deity who's smacking you on the back of your hand because you've strayed, but to use the suffering as a, a mirror to your heart and say, God, in this suffering, don't let me just pray for it to go away, but in my suffering, show me how much I need you alone. And so, th that's, the, that's an element of the temporal suffering. Um, but God does not bring… When we talk about judgment, um, it is finished. Justice has been served if you trust in Christ. And there is no suffering that you could endure that the Son, Jesus, the Lord and Savior, 
would not say, I know what you're going through, and I have endured far worse. So um, I don't know if that helps, Woe, but we, we worship a God who knows suffering personally, um, who, yes, calls you to endure suffering, perhaps um, to show you, uh, to, to, refine your, your, uh, to refine your faith, to show you how um, idols have gripped your heart and to pull you back to a harmonious fellowship with Him vertically that you might continue to cling to that which alone matters, the, the gift of the Son in enduring full, divine, eternal justice that you may not have to. I hope that helps a little bit. I know I rambled a little bit in the middle. I'm good at that. Daniel, with the microphone already. Thanks. Uh, I think, you know, Will, Will took the question I was going to ask, so I guess I'll go with a different one. Just kidding. Um, I think, you, you know, you shared and through some sermons, it's easy for people who are reading uh, books like this to skip over it or think, well, like when I read it, I think this sounds like I'm listening in on a conversation between, you know, people that don't have anything to do with me. Um, I think you've, uh, and the series has successfully disabused that idea that this is really relevant. But I guess I'm wondering, when you read through the whole book, uh, it sounds like, well, things are really bad, but, but God. And then the book kind of ends in a way. So what would, what would your hope be for GRC and for each of us having gone through this book, um, how we would respond to it and how it might impact the way that we uh, move forward? Thanks, Daniel. Um, I'll start with sort of a sanctified imagination. I wonder if, okay? I wonder if Micah had a brain cramp after delivering all this bad news, and all he could do was to end with this laser focus on the heart of God. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? Huh? You know, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, he's, he's truth-telling. He is standing in the gap, he's aiming at the, the worst of his contemporary society. Um, and yet, and he knows, so he knows easily justice is necessary to fix what is wrong, and yet he knows, as the Spirit enables him, that God is merciful. And he is a God who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his inheritance. He does not stay angry forever, but delights to show mercy um, you know, this is the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is how he's revealed himself to Israel from the very beginning. And Micah says, I know you're like that. E- even though the world is going to hell in a handbasket, I know you're like this. And that's all he could do, fall back on the character of God. He can't figure out the answers. He doesn't know what's going to happen in 700 years when um, Micah 5.2 is quoted by the Jewish leaders to King Herod. He doesn't know that. All he can do is reach the end of himself and fall back on the character of God. You delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us and tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities in the depths of the sea, and you will keep your promise to Jacob and Abraham. I don't know how. It reminds me of... Um, Paul in, in Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, he's, he's just finished outlining or, or laying out the, the fullness of the gospel in Romans. 
especially um, difficult in 9, 10, and 11 when he's talking about election and all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. 26. And I wonder if Paul said, what did I just write? <laughs> what does that mean? And all he can do is praise. Apostolic brain cramp. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Puts his quill down and walks off and has to finish Romans 12 through 16 a little bit later because he, he can't explain it. So I, I think I would say, you know, Micah does this. The Apostle Paul does this. Um, we are in an area of the world, not just in New Jersey and Metro New York, where the, the best and the brightest, right, academics, financial institutions, medicine, pharmaceuticals, etc., live and work and play. And we're so used to figuring things out because we're competent. We're educated, we're accomplished, right? The best of the world comes to New York City. And we need to push back against that impulse to figure things out on our own, to say, you know what? I have no idea. I I can't make heads or tails out of why you are enduring chronic suffering. I can't make heads or tails of of why, you know, as as somebody said to me just the other week, um, I think it might, might have been one of my kids, you know, um, some people who desperately want babies can't have them, and other people have babies and they, they won't care for them. You know, we can't explain that ultimately, but what we can do is follow the pattern of those who are, are filled with the Spirit and, and God has used to minister to us to say, um, we fall back on the character of God. He is good. He is loving. He will forgive. And he still maintains his justice, both at the same time without compromise. That's what I would say is is a takeaway from Micah. End with his last words. And that's that's why I, I tried to focus on that this morning. Thanks, Daniel. Anyone else? Probably have time for one more. Lilia, our candle lighter. just want to share a reflection. Um, There was a missionary who came here, actually, and that's how we met. Um, He shared a story with me about how he was evangelizing in these far eastern, uh, Middle East um, countries, and he would pray for them, and he just stood over a bridge and watching every single one passing by, and he would cry out to God because they're all perishing because they don't know Jesus. And so he had this heart of, like, Lord, but they're dying. They're dying. How can you let this happen? And he told me that eventually God gave him this answer that he is God. You know, there is no other. He mm-hmm. is God and God he only he is God. He's God al- alone. And we we don't deserve what we think we deserve. And I know that that's like a very mature it's like a it's something difficult to to hear that they're perishing, you know, they are perishing, but God is still God. Mm-hmm. And I know that's hard to hear, but when I heard that, I was very um, blessed by it because I felt like, that's right, you know, God is sovereign, only yeah. God. Yeah. And we, we're not to judge. And, and yes, things like that happen. They are perishing, but 
God still exists, and mm-hmm. He will somehow there will be a righteous moment one day where everything turns around. Amen. Yeah. Thanks, Lilia. All right, let me close this in prayer. God, thank you for your word. It leads us in ways we would never choose to be led. It, your word that flows from your heart that represents your character perfectly because you've inspired these words, spoken, written down over the centuries. You lead us in ways we, you, you reveal things that we would never think, that we'd never, we would never imagine. And, and when it's difficult, Lord, show us that you are far beyond our ability to comprehend fully. You reveal what we need to know. Your ways are higher than our ways, and your thoughts than our thoughts cause us to bow down in worship, in submission, in praise, and in longing for the fuller revelation when we see you face to face one day, when we will be known and we, we will know you fully. Lord, until then, fill us with faith, Enable us by your spirit to press on toward the goal and trust you perfectly. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.